listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. morning. I'm grateful that you guys can be with us this morning as we dive in and continue our study in the book of Romans. Prior to getting in there, um, I want to be able to give us a, a brief, if you will, overview of where we've been. But in doing that, I'd like to set the premise just quickly. So sophomore year in high school just finished, and I had decided that one of the things I wanted to do or explore with my life was rock climbing. My parents decided that they were willing to support this endeavor, but it required some level of training. So they signed me up for what was called Yosemite Mountaineering School. Now, I hadn't been out of Silver City, New Mexico, a small town southwest corner of the state, a beautiful place to grow, but I hadn't been out and explored a lot of different places and certainly had never been to Yosemite. But my brother and my dad and myself got on a plane and flew to Fresno, California. We made our way through the gateway of Yosemite National Park, and I was stunned by its beauty, the, uh, just the, the vibrancy of the colors and the landscape was incredible, and we rented a car and we began our drive through Yosemite National Forest. The trees seemed bigger. The colors seemed more vibrant. It was something very unique and special. The, the meadows were just unbelievable. It was, it was majestic and glorious to say the least. As we continued to drive our way through Yosemite with a few twists and turns, I was having my face peering outside the window just looking at the next thing that I might see. Sure enough, we make our way through Tuolumne Meadows and you curve around this place, and there it stands, El Capitan, right? This 3,000-foot granite precipice of just absolute magnificence, and it, it really does stand out in the midst of the landscape. Now, Yosemite is known by rock climbers as a, a place to go, and, and El Capitan is like the thing to climb. If you're a, a climber that has any clout whatsoever, you've at least attempted El Capitan. There's one guy just recently who decided to free solo El Capitan. If you know anything of what that means, it means he is doing it without any protection whatsoever. Just him and a chalk bag and a wing and a prayer that something is going to happen and he's going to fall to his death. It's an incredible story and documentary actually called Free Solo and it's worth watching. But I remember as we made that turn and El Capitan stands there in its absolute magnificence, I was just overwhelmed with a couple of emotions. One, I felt incredibly small and dwarfed within the enormity of this huge rock and just overly amazed at its uh, elegant beauty. And then I also felt very, very small in the sense that that would never be me. <laughs> I'd never be able to summit El Capitan. It would require an entire change of life. And even then, there would be no guarantee that 
the routes up the, this sheer rock face seemed impossible at the time as someone who's just a brand new climber. But El Capitan still stands in my mind as it's burned in there as this place of absolute magnificence, but also seems insurmountable in all honesty. As I say that, I want to tell you that I feel the exact same way about Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 stands as this chapter in the Bible that really is this pinnacle, this, this, this place where its absolute magnificence and grandeur stands before all who would take time to read. It is beautiful and amazing as Paul leads and develops this argument of the significance of what it means. And even if we attempted to define Christianity and, and what, the, what Christians believe Romans 8 would stand there is, this is the essence of, of what it means to understand God's interactions with us and our interactions with God. And so we see it in its absolute beauty and majesty. And yet, for me, I also feel dwarfed in its presence and unable to really reach the summit of this text. There's so much there. The journey of Romans 8 starts from no condemnation and moves us to no separation. It really is the, the quintessential essence of God's interaction with people. But how did we get here? Well, there were seven chapters before. And I, I want to just give a brief overview of why, because I think they all tie together as why Romans 8 stands as this pinnacle. It stands as El Capitan of the Bible, if you will, this place where you can see its, its majestic glory. And, and maybe even for many of us, myself included, can look at Romans 8 and, and see the significance and the joy of who God really is. Because often, I think, as we walk through this journey of life, you and I often are told who God is. We're told about God and, and what others think of God, but as we look at Romans 8, there's this absolute clarity of the Lord speaking about who he is in relationship to us, and he does it at a very, very street-level type of perspective. It's as though there's an understanding of you and I and the daily rhythms we live, the sufferings we face, the challenges we experience. There is not one emotion or struggle or challenge that we have to put to the side in order to encounter God. Romans 8 tells us that God encounters us. The primary question I think Romans 8 is going to ask us this morning and for the next two weeks after this one is how does God relate to me in the midst of my struggle? Like it's a very basic foundational reality that what we're agreeing to is a couple of things. Life is really tough. I've made decisions that I wish I hadn't have made. There are things that I wish I could redo. I wonder if I'm going to make those same decisions again. There's a, a struggle and a challenge of what exists inside, and we feel this war that goes on of really like we're directed by our emotions, and we want to feel differently, and so we search for ways to deal with the feelings that captivate our hearts, but then we also know in some ways that that there's something else out there, that there's a way in which we can find the things we're looking for, but we're not sure where to go, and it seems as though chaos and confusion mount. Romans chapter 8 is, in essence, a very targeted, directed reality of answering the very question of how does God relate to me in that? The struggles, the confusion, the uncertainty, 
the challenges of what I would call my life, my story, gets planted against Romans chapter 8, and we get the answer. Honestly, I think we get the answer of how God relates to us in the midst of the challenges of life. The regrets, the wishes, the coulda, shoulda, wouldas, those things are where God meets us in Romans 8. But where did it start? Romans 1.16 is basically the theme of the entire book of Romans. And what does it tell us? Right? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to all of those who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what he's telling us is the essence of what Romans is going to be about is this, this divine rescue of God's initiative on behalf of those who are stuck or feeling overwhelmed by life's challenges. God intervenes. It's not as though God is waiting for us to come to him. God comes to us through the person of Jesus Christ. But then he gives us an analysis of the world at, at large. And here's the analysis, Romans chapter one, right? We by nature, suppress the truth about God. This is what happens, right? We, we have a sense inside of us collectively that there's something bigger than us outside of us. And in the context of wrestling with those things, it means something, but by nature, we find ourselves suppressing that truth. Why? Because there's a part of us that feels like we can just do this on our own. We wanna be the little G God of our lives. And so in the process of needing an, an authority or a power outside of us, feels at times in our flesh or in our minds as a, as a failure, like there's something wrong that we shouldn't need anything. And so we suppress the truth about God. Romans 2 tells us that not only do we suppress the truth about God, but we suppress the truth about ourselves. We come to this conclusion that what ends up happening in the course of our lives is that maybe, just maybe, things aren't awesome, but we're better than the next person beside us. Or maybe in some ways we don't really have as many needs. And so we, we tend to put band-aids over bullet holes, as they say, and figure out ways in which we can just get along by just getting along. And yet happiness, joy, peace seem regularly elusive, hard to find. The very things that we're looking for seem as though they're just just one step away from us every moment. And what Paul would say is it's because we suppress the truth about ourselves. <laughs> we don't sense that we have as, as many needs as we really do, and admitting that we need those things makes it difficult. So then Romans 3 begins to answer some of those questions. Romans 3 is that sin has always been an issue. There's not once in the context of human history, save just pre-garden when Eve and Adam are there and we know the story and there's deception that takes place and there's a desire to be their own God, make their own decisions, sinners in the world. And so Romans chapter three is saying, let me just communicate to you the implications of that sin. And it's not just that Adam made a bad decision, but that if you and I were Adam, we would have done the same thing. There's just a, a longing and a desire for our own autonomy to do what we want to do. Somehow we have this desire to just figure out life on our own and, and sin has its, has its fingers in everything. Our appetites, our disordered desires, our longings, our perspective of the world, everything has been affected by sin. So it's the answer to sin. Well, either you manage it or you compare with others or what Romans 4 tells us is that Faith. It's always been about faith. 
From the very beginning, even before the law, Abraham stood outside of the, the law itself and said, look, as God works in the context of our experience with him, faith has been the raw material that God uses for intimacy because what God is primarily concerned about is not that you're going to be a good person by keeping the law, but that you realize that you're a bad person and that you need him, which is what we all have to realize, and that God is always moving towards relationship. And how do we find that relationship? Well, trust, confidence that what Christ did on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection secured for us intimacy with the God of the universe. That's the avenue and only avenue to experience that relationship with God. And what does it come through? It comes through faith. It doesn't come through proving ourselves or trying to earn God's favor or say, hey, God, look at me. I'm doing pretty good right now. Aren't you proud? The sense is what Paul is saying in the Romans chapter 4 is that faith, the, the raw material of just that level of saying, God, I, I want to, to trust you. I want to believe that the things that you say are true and that your ordered world, you have set things up and that your design from the very beginning has always been relationship with your creation. And so Romans 4 gives us that sense of saying it's not about duties or figuring out how to make sure that we check all the boxes. It's about giving our lives and our heart to Christ and understanding what he's done on our behalf. So it's finished. The words on the cross that Jesus spoke in that moment is it is finished. Not only did he accomplish what needed to be accomplished to pay for the sins of the world, but he then invites us to experience the reality of what he's accomplished through faith. And then the next three chapters of Romans, he basically does what every high school kid does in any relationship. It's called the DTR, right? You guys ever had it? It's the define the relationship talk. And the talk is, oh, where are we going? Is this relationship really going to work? Like, are we really committed to one another? It's that sort of defining of the understanding of the terms of what it means to be in relationship. And Paul does that with three different things. Romans 5 is the define the relationship with God. And what he says is, our relationship with God has changed. What he means is that initially, because of sin, we find ourselves as enemies of God. We are adversaries, actively competing against the will of God. And through faith in Jesus Christ, we move from adversaries to family. That our relationship with God is fundamentally changed, which means that now we're on the inside and we're no longer considered adversaries, but the Bible uses numerous terms, friends, sons, daughters, intimately connected as the family of God. We are no longer in opposition to the work and will of God. But then he also tells us that our relationship with sin has changed in Romans 6, which means that one of the greatest experiences that take place as we run through Paul's argument is not only do we have intimate relationship with God, but now that evil taskmaster of sin no longer has authority over us. That that thing, those appetites, those desires, those longings, that desire for autonomy in our own perspective of what we want life to look like, and even the sinful decisions we make in the context of our life, no longer has to be our story. That we have strength from outside of us, that we don't have to find ourselves living and abiding under the passionate, disordered desires that seem to affect every decision that we make. That we have been freed from sin. And then Romans 7. Our relationship to the law 
has changed. Which means that the very good, righteous, holy laws God ordered his world, put in things in place to say this is how things operate, this is what the world looks like, this is how it's supposed to work, but then often we as desiring to honor God with those things feel like our relationship with God can quickly become transactional. If I do this, God's proud. If I do this, God's disappointed. And so you always feel like you're weighing yourself in the midst of the scales of the universe and not ever really sure where we measure up. What Paul says is, that's not it. The law is great because it gives us an understanding of what sin is. We get a clarity of God's ordered world and know what it looks like. We know how things operate and we see this loving, tender care of God in the midst of our lives in such a way that we're aware that, yes, this is how things operate. But now I find myself in relationship to my creator and there's strength and intimacy and relationship that take place in such a way that I actually begin to long for the things of God over the things of the world. Those things that's in my affections begin to change. And then to the, to the end of Romans chapter seven, here's what Paul says to set up the precedent of Romans chapter eight. And I would say that what Paul does here is he describes unbelievably clearly the reality of our daily life. Here's what he says in verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Just prior to that, here's how he describes it. As I look at my life, here's my challenge. If I could be the descriptor of the war that takes place inside, I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. There's no health in me. Right? There's just this tension that, listen, that, that exists inside of us, where we find ourselves at war with our own appetites. And so that's the question. How does God relate to me in the midst of that struggle? When I find myself uncertain, where I feel like those desires come up, whether it's anger or frustration at the world around me or the person that just cut me off and I feel it welling up inside or I get angry because I don't get what I want or I find myself frustrated that the reality of the things that are taking place around me seem absolutely out of control or there's a sense of, of somebody disrespecting me or there's injustice in the world or I find myself wrestling with all of these things. I mean, that's, that's life as we understand it. Here's the question. How does God relate to us there the very place that you live right now the confusion that you feel the uncertainty about life your own my own sin struggles where is how does god see and interact with me there and then as el capitan stands out in tuolumne meadows is this precipice of majesty and grandeur the first words of romans 8 give us an indication. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. I looked at this text and I thought about El Capitan. And I, honestly, as this starts off, this is the very place where it feels difficult to even capture the substance of what Paul is saying. I've done my best. I do still think it's inadequate, but I think that it gives us an indication of how we can begin to hold on to what we can expect, that as you and I struggle with sin, and even in the midst of looking at our lives, and we would say, like, take the last moment where you knew that you had failed, like it just didn't work. How does God feel about you and interact with you or me in that moment? Here's what I think. In our sin, the Father relates to us as a physician, not a prosecutor. Imagine the difference. And again, I think that even that illustration is wholly inadequate because it it lends itself to thinking it's less relational and more about just cutting. And I, I think the relational component is critical of what the Father's doing here. But imagine the reality of what that means. There's a recognition by both the physician and the prosecutor that there's some sickness involved. Some wrong has been done. There is some reality of guilt that exists in the individual that's made the decision that they've made. But in the process of that, a physician seeks to cut and to heal and to bring hope in the midst of the most difficult struggles in life so that as you move forward, there's a level of of healing and restoration. The prosecutor just wants you to know that you're a criminal and condemn you in the midst of your sentence, right? The goal for the prosecutor is punishment. The goal for the physician is healing and transformation. So imagine those words resting on the deepest regrets that you walk out in the midst of your life and mine. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that what? The righteous requirements of the law would be met, fulfilled in us. So we're already seeing that the appearance, the way in which God relates to us in the midst of our struggles and our failures is one of family, not failure. That you, united with Jesus Christ, he sees and loves you as he loves his own son, the perfect, righteous lamb of God, the second person of the Trinity, the one completely innocent, never did anything wrong, was tempted in all ways, just like you and me, yet without sin. Because of faith and confidence, trust in who Jesus is, we have been given that righteousness, that reality of who Christ is lives and breathes inside of us through the power of the Holy Spirit, which doesn't mean that we're minimizing the significance of sin. What we're doing is we're maximizing the power of Christ. This is where everything changes. It's incredible to even consider that if we just sat in Romans 8, chapter 1 for the next year, we would not be able to wring out the fullness of its truth. 
there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that God relates to us, not from the standpoint of judge or prosecutor, but from the standpoint of loving, gracious, tender father who cares about his kids in such a way that he realizes their imperfections and is in the process of enacting and instrumenting change. God isn't looking at you at this moment, disappointed you didn't measure up. What if that sat on us for the rest of our lives? That God doesn't look at you with some stern desire to somehow make you figure out what you need to do and just do better and do more. It relates to you as a son or a daughter. I think that this is one of the most important aspects of theology as we wrestle with the scope of God's character. The reality of who he is and how we grow, often I think we can continue to be shackled by our desire of feeling like we don't ever measure up. And then the words of Romans 8, and even combined with Romans 7, right? I do what I don't want to do. I don't do what I want to do. There's no health in me. Paul describes himself, I'm a wretched man. After writing over, oh, just a little less than half of the New Testament, like he is identifying the place that you and I live. He's saying God relates to us not as a disappointed father who wished that his kids were better, but as a loving, kind, generous father who is working to see that each of us need his presence over our lives. It's a physician, not a prosecutor. God interacts with us as that which desires and is aware that you and I have not yet been perfected, but are being grown. This is the hope for our world. I think this aspect of what it means to understand the truth of the gospel is life transforming. It is hard, I think, for us, myself included, to grasp the weight of what Paul says here because everything else in life and all the voices we live and listen to would tell us that we are condemned. We condemn ourselves because we know how much we wish we would have done something differently. We lost time, we lost opportunities, we've done things that we wish we wouldn't have done. And the world tells us that we can, are condemned. We don't measure up. We haven't fulfilled and done the things that we wish we should have done, and, and people around us know it. But there's a relationship with the God of the universe who doesn't interact with you or me from the standpoint of condemnation. But he interacts with us from the standpoint of transformation. We are being changed. But because we know that God will never leave us or forsake us, that intimate relationship with God is so secure that no matter how hard it gets or difficult it is, condemnation is not what you will receive from the God of the universe if you are in relationship with him through faith in Christ. But he continues on. If, there was, if that were enough, that would be great, but there's even more. If you'll look with me in verse five, here's where he continues on to talk about what that transformation look like? Remember the main question is, how does God interact with us in the midst of our struggles? Well, initially we realize that we're not condemned, but loved. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God's law. Um, indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot 
please God. So I think he now moves to a deeper understanding of how we begin to think about the reality of our relationship with God. Like what enters into our mind as we realize that God doesn't interact with us from the level of condemnation but transformation. That it's not an aspect of judgment but an aspect of love that moves him towards us. That there's an eliciting of God's compassion in the midst of our worst and deepest struggles. In all the secrets that no one else knows that God does, it is not, oh, he stands over this and says, Chuck, come on, man. How many times have you learned these things? I've told you this a thousand times. You feel like you should figure it out by now. Enough's enough. And yet often, in the back of our mind, there's a sense in which we feel like maybe that's just how God feels about us. Romans 8 comes exploding onto the scene and saying, "Uh uh-uh, that's not what it's about. The goal is not that you'll mature in your relationship with God, that you'll need him less and less. The maturity in our relationship with God means that we need him more and more. That there's a substance and that God is always relating to us in a way of communicating his transforming love for us. So let me suggest to you this morning that life and change are gifts given, not events achieved. I think that's what he's communicating in these verses in a broad sense. That life and change, the work that the Spirit is doing in us, is shifting the way that we think about the world around us and even our interaction with God. And so if life and change are gifts given, not events achieved, then what's the end result? Well, the end result is it's got to be about God, not about us. That he's doing something. It's his work inside of us. And we, even as we think about setting our minds on the things of the spirit and not setting our minds on the things of the flesh, it means that that war that Paul describes in Romans 7 is the very essence of where we live life that often we think in ways that God is changing and transforming. But it's not as though if I just do the right things, I'll think the right way and everything will be better. Because then it becomes about our ability to maintain and manage life. And the goal is to say, every day, every moment, we are always gonna need more and more of the work of the Spirit inside of our lives. That God is doing something special and unique. And he talks about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit doing that transformation. I was reading just recently, there's a book by, by an atheist. Yeah, surprisingly, I'll, I'll read some atheists. Why not, right? I need some information, understanding what they have to say. But this guy's brilliant. His name is Jonathan Haidt, and he's a professor of uh, sociology and psychology out of NYU. And he, he wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. Intriguing book. Because really what he's thinking about is how we in a secular society even consider what it looks like to become happy. It's a hypothesis. There's always things competing against it, but he has this image that I think is incredibly unique. Now, Paul would call it a war between the spirit and the flesh. Jonathan would give this perspective of what he would call the elephant and the rider. The rider is our rational self, according to Jonathan, and here's what he's saying. Our rational selves is the ones that wants to make the decisions and decide on where we're going to go. It's the one that is specifically, in theory, driving the elephant. The elephant is what? You can guess. Our appetites and desires, right? The things that are going on inside that we really want. And so what he's communicating to us is one of the challenges that we face is that our rational self, as much as it wants to do the right thing, how often and effective is it for a small little rider of 150 to 250 pounds to direct an elephant? 
right? It, it doesn't really work that well because if there's something that our desires have, our appetites have, it goes to where it wants. And no matter how hard our rational self tries to redirect the elephant to do what we think we should do, the elephant just overpowers it. That was, in a sense, what Paul describes as the war between the sin and the flesh. But let me, let me just read for you a little bit as he describes this happiness hypothesis and the challenges between our rational self and our emotional self. It says the rider, representing reason, can do her best to attempt to direct the elephant, but the elephant is far more powerful and has its own will. It will not comply with the rider's commands if those commands conflict with its desires. Thus, the rational part of ourselves can advise and guide our emotional core, but in a pure contest of wills, emotion will nearly always defeat reason. Here he goes on. The rider-elephant metaphor neatly describes the back and forth going on within the self, but there are other dimensions of this division. As humans, Jonathan Haidt says, we are controlled primarily by our desires and we are driven by our emotions, not our powers of reason. This is the most consequential manifestation of this split-brain phenomenon. One part of our brain, the elephant, determines our opinions and positions on moral questions. The other part of our brain, the rider, creates reasons to justify those opinions, but only after the elephant has made its decision. The automatic system, the elephant, he says, simply responds to stimuli around it and forms judgments and preferences based on what it perceives. And in a pure contest of wills, the elephant will nearly always beat out the controlled system, the rider. Here's what he says. Listen to this. The key is to change the stimuli in your environment into those that will produce desires whose pursuit and fulfillment will lead to true satisfaction. Here's what he says. You can't master the elephant, but perhaps you can change what the elephant sees. Well, isn't that intriguing? Like, he's almost there, right? When you think about his perspective on life and all this, he's almost. But what Paul says is very similar in the sense that what you fix your minds to begins to direct the emotions of your heart. So, so in a sense, changing what you see makes sense in relationship to God. So seeing the world as God sees the world shifting the challenges we face and the suffering and the uncertainty and the sin that you and I experience in the daily rhythm of life. What if the main operating perspective of what you saw and I saw when we saw God and we came just frustrated at the constant chronic bad decisions we've made is we heard this echo in our souls, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right, if what was that is what we saw that began to stimulate our hearts for the things of God. And then what Paul says is that's what's next, right? Set your minds on the things of the Spirit because the things of the flesh, they're hostile to God. They're gonna lead you very far away from the very place that God has desired and developed you to experience true satisfaction in Him. So change the stimulus. Change what you think and the way that you think. And it's not something that we just change ourselves, although that's what Jonathan Haidt would say is just, change the environment, change the stimulus so that you can find true satisfaction. But that, that satisfaction is self-determined according to him. See, but according to the scriptures, satisfaction is found in Christ alone. So we have the stimulus. We have the environment. And that environment 
is placing ourselves in that relationship with God and the relationship with God's people and the truth of God's word that begin to direct our affections. And that's why life and change are a gift, not an event. It's something that constantly and chronically is going to be a part of our life because we're in relationship with the God who is constantly changing us. And so here is the last part that I think is infinitely critical because I think it rounds out the significance of why this is so beautiful and majestic and yet even at times feels so insurmountable. And here's what he says. Verse 12. So then, brothers, we're debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are employees of God. They're robots. They just do what God wants and don't really have any agency or decision. That's not what Paul says. You, you, you see the relational world that he, word he uses here? All who are directed and led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That there's this uniting with the family of God in such a way that the way that God relates to us is the same way he relates to Christ. That the same way the Father relates to us is the same way he relates to Christ. That, that there's a, a knowledge and a reality and a, a substance to this being in the family of God. Here's what he says. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry, Abba, Father. Adoption. This sense of that we've been moved from the harsh conditions of slavery to sin to the protective family of God as sons. We've been transferred. We've been moved from the harsh conditions of enslavement to sin where our appetites drive our decisions and that what is left in the wake is regret, shame, guilt, embarrassment, hiding. All of those notions are what happens when we find ourselves in slavery to sin. But through faith in Christ, here's what happens. We've been moved from the harsh conditions of slavery to sin to the absolute protective reality of being sons and daughters of God, that we've been considered in the most significant and real way, his kids. And not in the harsh sense of a father disciplining his children to get what he wants, but in the loving sense of the father of the universe communicating compassion and love for his people. So coming full circle is... My sophomore year, we found ourselves, uh, you know, looking at El Capitan, beautiful precipice of just absolute majesty and grandeur, but I knew there'd be no way that I would be able to measure up. And I also certainly knew that after a week of Yosemite Mountaineering School, they weren't going to prepare me to climb El Capitan by any stretch of imagination. But we did climb something, Piwiak Dome. <laughs> We tried to make it feel better. We, there was like four of us in this group, and we're like, you got to be a maniac to climb Piwiak. And we were doing our best, right? We were just trying to make it feel like it was manly and significant. Piwiak was no El Capitan, right? It just wasn't even in the same ballpark. 
And yet we can hear the words of Romans 8, Romans 8, wash over us, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Right? We've been set free. We can set our minds of the things of the Spirit. Not the, we, we are sons. Adoption, the most glorious theology in all of Scripture. The, the reality of us being united with the truth that we are God's kids, sons and daughters. Adoption, chosen from the harsh conditions of slavery to sin, moved into the protection of nature, and having an inheritance that we have in God alone. But I would suggest this morning that if not willing to stay and sit under the truth of this scripture, we will settle for the piwiac domes of our life. <laughs> right? It'll just be something that'll be like, that's never going to be true. You don't know how hard life is. You don't realize the enormity of the bad decisions I've made. You don't know what I struggle with now. If I told you what I struggle with, you would be embarrassed. And so there's just a way of saying, I, I want to be more isolated. And yet what Romans 7 talks about and what Jared said last week is it gives us permission to struggle. And, and here's why. Because in the midst of the struggle, even if the entire world condemns you, God does not if you're in Christ. That, that the hope and the reality of how God relates with his people is not from the standpoint of condemnation, but transformation. We're his kids, and there is no more glorious truth to chew on. So don't settle for piwiac, right? Even if you're a maniac, whatever that means. It means settle into the reality of the invitation that the Lord has offered you. You, through faith in Christ, are not condemned, but loved because you're his kids, and it is worth giving our lives to that reality. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for your mercy and kindness. We do thank you that um, we are not a finished work. You give us hope beyond hope. That even in the midst of the multiplicity of voices that we hear and often how we give ourselves to just listening to the appetites of our flesh, you're not, fi you're not finished with us. You're not looking at us as a disappointed father wishing his kids were different. You're not loving a future version of us. You love us currently and are changing us miraculously. So Lord, we surrender to you and are so thankful that condemnation is not a voice that we hear from you. Transformation is. And so all of those voices of condemnation that continue to swirl around in our minds, would we be able to lay those down and just as you had said in Romans 5 and 6, it's always been about faith. So we want to say this morning that we do trust you and trust that that's true. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.